That's more like it. There we go. Officially landed on the best spirits of New Mexico music, maybe of all time. That's just that's perfect. Just take all of me. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> I don't know what this is, but this is good stuff take, here. That's just fantastic. Why not take all of me? Yeah. Is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah. All of me. Oh, yeah. oh that's the great yeah. standard. Yeah. Wow. It's just that, just that beautiful sound of the saxophone. Yeah. When you get the saxophone in there, with the, that's with the air going. going over. Oh. You know, it's as smooth and silky as the wine we're drinking today. Oh, nicely done. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is... Wow. Jim Hammond, Kevin Petrosnik, they're here. They're enjoying some wine, and uh, wow, what a beautiful little spread we got. We got two bottles of wine. Uh, both these uh, bottles uh, retail uh, directly, if you put them together, for over $100, uh, but they're well worth it. And Jim's, Jim's going in... <laughs> There's no hesitation. He's uh, set up a great show. And uh, Kevin Petresnik, of course, uh, probably knows spirits and wine better than anybody here in the state of New Mexico. What you get on your retail shelves, where they go, who's buying what, how much it's going for. And we're going to have uh, some other uh, people who are going to be partaking in this great radio show over seven years uh, in the making. And uh, Jim, Kevin, good evening. Good Saturday evening to you. Beautiful evening. Saturday evening. At the, at the end of what would have been balloon fiesta, right? They're calling it balloon siesta this year. The greatest <laughs> fiesta. balloon fiesta weather season yeah. of all time was this oh my, week. This is like the best yeah. ever. And it's yeah. just like totally, oh my, it was like the best weather week ever. Ever. Yeah, ex ever. Ex exactly. Not yeah. a drop of rain, not a very low wind. Yeah, I think uh, oh. the highest uh, wind all week was nine miles an hour. Yeah. <laughs> They're kicking themselves. They would have been flying, <laughs> but there would have been a mass ascension every morning. Yeah, there would have been. Yeah. Well, we've had, what, 20, 30 balloons up? Yeah, but I'm saying like the real mass, like it would have well, been, yeah, it would have no. been, the, it would have been the granddaddy of all. The, the the one where we had a thousand balloons that one year when we had a thousand balloons, the entire sky was balloons. You couldn't see any blue between. Oh them. Yeah, it, was, yeah. it was unbelievable. Well, we've got a heck of a show today, Jim. Oh boy. We put together a doozy, right? This is a this is a special show because right, it's a it's circling around the anniversary. Is it the forty fifth anniversary? What do we have? The forty. 76. 76. Do the math. So, right, yeah, that'll be 44. That. I'm, uh, I'm 75. So. 44. Okay, 44th anniversary of the Judgment of Paris. That's right. So we thought we would uh, we, play we, on we that. We found two yeah. bottles of wine to really... Yeah, the, the only thing that was missing, of course, was the French component. But as far as the American component, we are fully covered. Well, we're covering the winners, right? Exactly. We, we took the winner side of this, yeah. of this judgment. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's you know, it's it's. Uh, I'm sure the, uh, the the French are still upset about that, but you know, they they did recover. They did recover. The the thing is, what it did was was tell people you know, the gentleman of Paris was was that great wine can come from anywhere, and it, it actually induced a lot more people coming into drinking wine. Yeah. So it benefited everybody quite dramatically. It might have talked a few jaws in in the wine judges in at the judgment. But as far as everyone else, it was just opened their eyes to 
the great variety of, of wines that we that we now enjoy. And so it was a, a very significant wine event, to say the least. So uh, we're going to talk about Napa Chardonnay. Why? Because the two wines we're enjoying are Napa Chardonnays. Very fine uh, examples of Napa yeah, Chardonnay. Yeah, yeah, yeah two, two, probably two of the the best examples you could possibly come up with. Um, uh, if we had Farniente in here, I guess Farniente, we, yeah, we would yeah. probably have the triumvirate of of wonderful ones here. Maybe maybe a Mondavi Reserve or yeah. something like that. You know, but, might add to the depth of the. Of but then I'm not sure we'd survive the yeah, uh, the, yeah. the event. <laughs> That's just too much good wine all at one time. No, I don't think you want to do that. Anyway, so we're yeah we're talking about uh, Napa Chardonnay, and again these are. Uh, I haven't done a, a a total test on this, but I, my, my sense is. The most expensive Chardonnays you'll get in California are Napa. Uh, and, in fact, these are two examples that would suggest that. Um, so the, the, the two we have are the Gurgich Hills Estate. This is their 2016. Uh, it's it's a fully or, organic uh, biodynamic, uh, which is the trend that a lot of places in California went to. Uh, and, of course, uh, Gurgich is one of the names on it, and that's Michael Gurgich or Majenko. Uh, if you want to use his native name, um, he, he enough people sputtered over that that I guess he wanted to call himself Mike. Mike, uh, yeah. and it's kind of a nice, friendly name. It's hard Mike. enough to pronounce his last name. People mess that up. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and and misspelling it. Oh uh, boy, we don't even want to go there. Anyway, and the other one, of course, is where he was the winemaker of uh, when the, the Judgment of Paris and their wine won, and that's the Chateau Montalegna. Uh, which is still owned by uh, Jim and Bo Barrett. Uh, there was a unsuccessful attempt to purchase them in 2008. A coup? Uh, and and uh, <laughs> in, in fact, it, it, it was a Bordeaux manufacturer wanted to come there. I'm, I'm sure they were just going to nuke the place as soon as they bought it. <laughs> it says, uh, we're, we're removing every trace of this particular... Well, no, they... Uh, they wouldn't do that. No, they wouldn't do that. They understood that, that, that this was great wines and they wanted to acquire it, but they couldn't. Uh, so it is still owned by by uh, Jim and Bo and Heidi Barrett. Heidi Barrett is, I, I mean, talking about triumvirates, these are three very uh, well-known and and very much appreciated uh, winemakers. Actually, I don't think Jim did. He, he, he was more in the vineyard. Uh, and and uh, Mike Gergich, of course, was, the, was his winemaker then. And, of course, Bo was c- coming along. And Heidi... Heidi Barrett, of course, is is the one that worked at Screaming Eagle, among other places. Wow! Yeah, oh, yeah. Holy moly! She is considered one of the great uh, wine winemakers in the world. That's like one of the that's the original cult wine oh, yeah. Napa, right? I mean, a- absolutely, yeah, five thousand dollar highly allocated wine, and uh, I will glad to say uh, somebody had some leftovers from the World Poker Tour back in two thousand and four, and I had to uh, had a had a little bit of it, a little pull. Ooh. Wow! Nice. Yeah, I'm still working on the nose of of the Chateau Montalegna myself. Just, a, I haven't even tasted. You know, it, before yeah. we get into all this, I'm just staring at these two bottles and looking at the. the uh, and I'm not an expert on this, but you, the, the bottle shapes are different. Yes, they are. And and it, to me, it looks like the Gergich Hills is more of sort of a classic Chardonnay bottle. But tell me about the Montalegna. What what is is that more of a French style? Well, it's uh, the bottle. It's, 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 it's a good thing you mentioned that because yeah, I hadn't actually noticed it before. But you're right. They're 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 both. They they both have a, a sloping um, mouth area, the soft shoulder, oh, 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 yeah, the, the soft the, shoulder, the soft shoulder, right? Yeah, it's just that it's higher on the Chateau Montalegna than it is on the the yeah. Gergich. 
and so that's those are two variations of the same. This the the Gurkhas would be the classic uh, burgundy bottle shape. Okay, uh, and this this one is just a modification. Of, well, as you know, it's we started with two classic shapes. From there, we expanded out right. into all sorts of variations of it. The the, the point is for a uh, a wine like like this, you're not going to have any residuals, so you don't want to have the steep shoulder that you have on a Bordeaux bottle, right? Uh, so that's and but then you're free to just come up with your own designs. It's just like some of the ones in Provence have uh, they don't anymore, but they actually had one shape of a fish. I'm thinking huh. like, huh. yeah, oh, oh yeah, it, it was a whole fish. And I, I said. People actually bought that, really? I mean, I know uh, we could do a whole show on bottle shapes. One of my favorite, I'm just going to make a mention, one of my favorite ones out there right now is a, a Gerard Bertrand Rosé, uh-huh. uh, Cote de Roses. Right. And, it, and at the bottom of the bottle, it's a classic Rosé bottle, but at the bottom, they've uh, sort of etched in a rose. So if you turn the bo- when it's empty, you turn the bottle upside down, you've got a glass rose on the bottom of the bottle. Which is kinda, yeah, it's kind of a, yeah, it's kind of a cool, cool uh, you know, design piece that you just wouldn't expect. But uh, and again, it has that glass yeah. stopper right. on it as well, which is fascinating. Anyway, we could do a whole show just on bottle shapes, but we're not. We should. We should, but we're today, we're not. So I think we put most of our listeners asleep if we did that. <laughs> uh, you should see this is a wonderful, gorgeous shape. Well, you can't see it, but if you could, let me describe it to you. Uh, I don't think that's going to work. <laughs> we'd, probably, we'd probably start talking about how it feels, what it looks like. Yeah, get ourselves in trouble we with might, the FCC. Yeah, we, might, <laughs> yeah, exactly. we might creep somebody out. We don't want to do that. So, Anyway, so now I've tried this one. Yeah, th- this one is actually really interesting. It's, it's a little different. Uh, it's got a little bit different. The oak is definitely different in it. Yeah. The expression from the oak. You get a little bit more of the clothes. Yeah, this one seems a little, uh, the, the Gurgic seems a little um, more crisp and acidic. Yeah. And yeah. the Montalini is a little softer and a little, just a little more rounded right. and softer. And that kind of has to do, and, and uh, again, uh, one of the reasons I wanted to do this was when someone says California Chardonnay, everyone has a different image yeah. of them. A, a lot of them, they still are thinking about the the oaky, buttery, uh, over-alcoholic wines. Yep. And, in fact, that is only – there was a period where that was the most popular design. It's fortunately not now, but uh, there's a lot of evolution that that occurred. And a lot, and we have much to thank about for a lot of the, people, the early innovators who Yeah, there's actually, a movement towards less oak now. There seems yeah. to be a little movement moving moving towards the not as oak and 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 the choice of oaks too. Uh, the yeah. American oak, of course, is more aggressive. So if you're using a French oak, yeah, uh, and of course it depends on which particular forest you took it from, because those all have a different impact on it. And there was times when they thought they didn't want to do oak. There was times when they thought they wanted to do too much oak. So uh, there have been trends over time, and that's part of what we'll take a look at here. Uh, again, all around the topic of the judgment of Paris, so we're kind of building to that. So that was kind of a, a great awakening, a lot of area. But the other thing to be aware of is that uh, back in the 60s, um, in the early 60s, uh, when there wasn't that much Chardonnay planted in California in its entirety, um, the uh, we just got to a point where a table wine was replacing dessert wines as Seriously, huh? And and in fact, a lot of the growth we had was was people uh, th- deciding that they really like table wines, not just the really sweet, yeah. icky stuff. And and that that was a transition that was occurring through the sixties into the seventies, and that of course was influencing the amount of grapes being planted in any case too. So you start out with three hundred acres in nineteen sixty of Chardonnay. This is all through California, three hundred acres. That's it. 
that 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 was it. Now it's over a hundred thousand acres. So and the, the the it was actually more than that uh, earlier on. But it's, it's kind of a battle between the Cabernet Sauvignon and the Chardonnay as to which is the most prevalent. I mean, it's still, Chardonnay is still the most popular white variety. Oh, absolutely, by far. Yeah, it, worldwide it is. Yeah. yeah, and and there's a lot of reasons for that. But well, even in California, it's the most popular. Yeah, white. Ab- absolutely. So, um, it, the the uh, the first instance of it, just to give you a little fast history, was uh, probably the 1880s. Uh, the first documented case was from. In 1882, Charles Wetmore, W-E-T-M-O-R-E. Charles Wetmore was incredibly influential in a lot of the early history of uh, winemaking in in, uh, in California. And so he had uh, imported budwood. Budwood is what we call the, the, the cuttings. Budwood means that you can use this and you can graft it onto your, your rootstock. Okay, so uh, he, he got this from... Uh, from the Mirceau area of Burgundy, which is like one of the top white wines. Yep. In fact, the top white wine against the uh, uh, against Chateau Montalegna. <laughs> I was going to say that because a, a Mouvedre. So yeah. Yeah, you 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 uh, uh, Mirceau. Mirceau. Yeah, you mm. sent over that list of wines that went up against it, and I was remembering that that was one of the ones on the list. Yeah, exactly. I like, oh, I wonder. Yeah, it be, this is the wine that beat out the Mirceau. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> And and uh, so the his his warranty was La Cresta Blanca. I think it's still around. Uh, I I used to do a lot of touring in in the Livermore Valley from where I lived, and it was it was, uh, it was a less appreciated at that time. But they did wonderful stuff, and a lot of innovative things went on there. And then the other thing was the Wente family, W E N T E, a very prominent early uh, family, and I've I've actually enjoyed a lot of their wines. Over yeah, the my years. my wife's been to their winery. They have there was a wed- they had a wedding of a friend up there. Oh yeah, many years ago. Yeah, I'm trying to remember where, where uh, I can't remember the name of the town that's it, but it's 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 more inland. The Wenty Winery is more. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. It, it's it's. Uh, I, I believe it's also in Livermore. If I'm not yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah but it's but, yeah, yeah, but it's definitely doesn't have that coastal influence. No, it does not. But it's it, it's not even by the Delta. But they yeah. they do have their own unique. Influence. Great wines, though. They have some great wines in that at a Wenty. Yes. We yes. we sell them. And yeah. I'm very. I'm a fan of the Wenty. So uh, anyway, so the the Wenty family. I just got, love. I love the name of that. The way he said that, I'm the fan of the Wendy. Yeah, I'm a fan of the Wendy. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. So, so the the Wendy family got their their cuttings from the University of Montpellier, uh, which was uh, in southern France in 1912. Uh, this is a one of the most significant nurseries for getting budwood uh, in France. So they, they they went to one of the really good sources, and the combination of the, of those Wetmore and and the Wendy became the Wendy clone. This was the first very significant clone that was propagated through a lot of California for the Chardonnay grape. So it's important to know that. You, you, you're talking about history, and I'm just looking at this, but it says established in, it says 1882 on the bottle of Chateau Montalina. Now, are they referring to this? Uh, well, at that particular time. I want time, to find out what they exactly they're talking about here. That was, well, um, I, I actually got to cover that a little bit okay, later. Okay, sorry, okay. I was getting yeah, ahead of it, myself. Yeah, that's part of the history. But, yeah, it is very significant. Go ahead. That this is when these things started. Okay. Um, and uh, and it also realized that at the time, uh, some of them might have known it was Chardonnay, but then we didn't have uh, the UC Davis telling us, well, according to the DNA, this is actually a Dijon clone or what, what, whatever. In fact, the concept of clones was not even 
uh, prevalent there. It's really the 80s where you started to get the idea. So people didn't know what where the source was at the time. They were drinking yeah. great wine, but they, they didn't, didn't know. know what the wine, the grape was. The grape, the grape was, right. Yeah, yeah, just, they, yeah, a lot of times they had these things called black vineyards. And the black vineyard had all black fruit in it. But it was a combination of, of different uh, grapes. And a lot of times they made the wine from it without knowing what the grapes were that sourced it. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. You know, nowadays everyone can tell you, "Oh, yeah, I got this clone and blah blah blah," and I put it in this particular. You know, that's now. So back uh, then it was like a mutt compared it, to a purebred. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. There was a lot of that. <laughs> you know, pure, uh, a purebred would have been unheard of back then. So Paul Masson, of course, we remember oh, good old Paul. He imported Budwood from Burgundy from his friend Louis Lecouture, uh, one of the big influential <laughs> French winemakers. So that was a good source. That was 1896. Uh, he actually did his planting in the Santa Cruz Mountains, and actually the uh, it's uh, the the place where he did it. Actually, I've gone there many times. They, they do a lot of great concerts there. It's just a, above the town of Saratoga in the Santa Cruz Mountains, and uh, so that's where he started. That was taken over by Martin Ray. Martin Ray is a significant name in in the winemaking history as well. No disrespect to Paul Masson, but I, I the the phrase that comes to mind is how the mighty have fallen. Because the, the name Paul Masson is not associated with top quality producing wines nowadays. That's true. So, I, I mean, certainly volumes of wine, for sure, oh, yeah. quantity, oh, yeah. and, but, but people don't really think of Paul Masson as the highest quality of wine. No, that, nowadays. that's true. But yeah. it, I, I like it, the nowadays. Yeah, well, I'm trying to, <laughs> yeah, good. Trying to be you know, politically correct here I hear you. a little bit. So, anyway, so the, the point is, Martin Ray t- taking over, he was really a good winemaker. In fact, he was very influential, certainly the Santa Cruz Mountains. I, I mean, he's one of the legendary names there. And uh, the, the, his version, his, uh, what, what he had planted uh, and nurtured at a higher elevation, about 1,000 and over 1,000 foot elevation, uh, was later called the Mount Eden clone. Uh, Mount Eden, of course, is a wonderful uh, Wine, I don't know if you ever tried yeah, any. Actually, I have. Yeah, we so we represent those as well. Yeah, they they do great stuff. So, uh, well, yeah, Jeffrey Patterson uh, be, became the winemaker there, and in fact, Jeffrey was there when I first started tasting their wines and loved the, not realizing that this was a significant different clone. So you have already two clones now, with distinctly different characteristics that are of evolving wine. Um, now, when we go to Napa and where this all started. In uh, 1946, Fred McRae founded Stony Hill in the Spring Mountain District. Spring Mountain is one of the mountain districts of, of Napa. A great, and, great and, growing district. Yeah. The place. Oh, it's, it's Spring Mountain. I love Spring Mountain. I've, I've done tasting all the way up the mountain. It is just one of the more, more fun places to go. Is that I, being, I had a picnic there. Is that being impacted by the fires, Spring Mountain area? No, it's too far in. Okay. Too far on the mouth okay. of the uh, okay. inset, yeah. no. And, and so Stony Hill was between 1,000 and 1,600 feet. Again, the higher elevation... Again, if you're on Napa Valley floor, really hot there. It's not exactly optimal for a Chardonnay grape. Not that everyone knew exactly, but this one was the first time that Chardonnay was knowingly planted in California. Okay? In other words, which kind of alludes to what I was talking about before. It's like, well, this looks like an interesting grape. Let's plant this here. What is it? I don't know, but it looks like it's a white grape of some kind. And, uh, you know, the... Uh, Ampelography, which is identifying a, a grape before you had to identify it by here's the color of the grape, here's the size of the grape, uh, here's the kind of the, the characteristic of the cluster, here are the leaf shape, 
because the leaf shape is also. Right. And that's how you would kind of get a guess. But then you'd find out, well, I've narrowed it down to five different grapes that it could be based on that. What do I do to get beyond that point? That's where the DNA came in. Uh, and that was actually perfected by Professor Carol Meredith of UC Davis. And that wasn't until 1960? Uh, 1960, well, yeah, the, the, the first plantings was like around 1948. Oh, 40, okay. Yeah. And so 1960s is, is when um, they, you, know, you started to see more more planted, but it's, it was only the impetus of, of a lot of people deciding to go switch from dessert wines to table wines, what, what we basically know right. was the wines we have now. And, and that was part of what fueled the, the fact that you were getting more people growing it. Um so, by the end by the end of the 1970s, it was it, it was uh, made with some skin contact. Okay, normally we talk about you get the juice, you take the throw the skins out. No, there was some juice contact, uh, uh, some skin contact. Excuse me. Um, and 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 then they did a cold fermentation, um, and so very cold temperatures. Uh, again, uh, when, when stainless steel started coming out, um, and and this was perfected. Actually, it was. Were pretty much perfected in uh, California, they realized they could control the temperature of the fermentation. Now, in, in the old days, you uh, you want to do the fermentation in the fall when it was a lot cooler because the temperature, uh, the fermentation, of course, is, generates a lot of heat. Okay, right. you're, you're you're converting uh, you're converting the sugars to alcohol. You're generating a lot of heat. If it's a cool enough area, it compensates for that. But if not, you can actually end up causing it to shut down. The fermentation, if the temperature gets too high, sure, the yeast, yeah, it, it's it can't can't consume the sugars, right? Correctly, well, yeah, it, it it basically shuts down. Yeah. So, um, with temperature control, you can control the exact temperature you want, and between four or five degrees, you'll get a different kind of wine coming out. Okay, mm-hmm. I, I mean, it really makes a, a difference depending on what you're trying to emphasize. So that that was one of the really big deals that, and and again. They realized that stainless steel was going to be a really cool thing to use for Chardonnay. So um, the, the the style again changed once once more uh, after a lot of these winemakers went to Europe and they learned about how Chardonnays were made in Burgundy, for instance, most most particularly in Burgundy. They exchanged information. They got different ideas about about what they should do with the Chardonnay. A lot of the Europeans came to California. Uh, again, part of this is the Judgment of Paris uh, influence, and they wanted to check out what we were doing here. Uh, spies. You know, yeah. Yeah. Well, not really spies. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> we, we don't want to. We call them wine spies. We, we, we don't want to characterize them quite like that. And uh, <laughs> It's a competitive game over there. Some of them probably were, uh, you know, and, and, and we want to check your secrets, what you're doing here. But they also bought a lot of properties. So a lot of the French influence came in during this time as well, buying buying land there. And uh, so anyway, some of the, the techniques that occur here were whole cluster fermentation. Okay, you probably heard that term before. Yeah. Basically, you put the whole cluster in, which means you're going to have the stems along with it. So what uh, the kill the important thing here is, if you're doing this, you have to make sure that the cluster is totally ripe and that the stem wood is also. If it's still green, you'll get really bitter phenolics from it so but if it isn't you end up having some really nice earthy elements that come from just that so that was a one thing to influence uh cold soak what, what was another innovation they would actually uh, keep this the uh, grapes on the skins in, in a cold environment before they did the crush so they would 
uh, again, the, the idea was to generate a little more color, a little more intensity. And then you, uh, and then of course you had the skin contact dormant fermentation. They were using ambient yeast uh, fermentation. Okay, what that means is instead of using a manufactured yeast. Yep. Okay, which there's all different kinds of yeast you can get because I want that yeast number five hundred two because it's going to do what I want for the grape. I'm, I'm familiar with that term. Let me see if I can get. Let me see if I got this right. Okay, it's just the yeast that's naturally found in the air. That's correct. That acts upon the grapes and causes the. It's sort of a natural fermentation process yep. Yep. without adding any additional yeast. Exactly. Do you remember when we had an entire show just on all of these different? Uh, I mean, it was very scientific, very educational. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, and, and in fact, the the yeast is also on the skins. So yeah. you don't even have to worry about airborne yeast. The, okay. the yeast that's on the skin is, is enough to, to do it. So you got enough to get it started. And, and, and it that's going. the way the Gergish Hills does theirs. Okay. Wow. Uh, if, if you look at the technical sheet, in fact, I'll, I'll, I'll let you see the technical sheet. This is kind of cool. Thanks, Jim. <laughs> uh, I couldn't find I couldn't find one for the uh, for the two, 2017 Montalina. Because it's uh, secret. It's a, it's a very guarded secret. Yeah, ancient Chinese way? secret. There we go. <laughs> that's the way they are. <laughs> Uh, no, no spies there. No spies allowed. Yeah. And they also did controlled MLF by inducing a lactic bacteria. Uh, so, again, malolactic for fermentation, we've talked about this before, is, is a way of softening and getting a buttery element from the wine. Uh, most, uh, again, all red wines are done this way. Uh, it basically softens the, the wine so the harsh tannins are, are kind of, you know, move more to the background. But uh, it wasn't typically done with white wines, but for Chardonnay, it was one that they, it went, when they first discovered accidentally, actually, uh, then they decided they would actually specifically go ahead and do it uh, with, with a, a lactic bacteria. But it changes the, the, uh, the malic acid, like you would have in a, an apple, that really crisp, mm-hmm. uh, into a lactic acid like you have in milk. So you end up with a buttery element, but it does sacrifice some of the acidity. Yeah, this does and not. They say this specifically. This Gergachels does not do malolactic fermentation. Exactly. Yeah, it keeps yeah, its the, minerality, the crispness, the acidity. You right. can totally taste all that, all that through there. Yeah, th- that yeah. that was his idea, and yeah. and so the what they do instead of that is they use the surly technique, S U R L I E, and that means stirring the leaves. So what they did was just in the tank that they, they would take a, a big stick and they would just stir all of this together. To keep mixing it all in, and 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 uh, in, including the yeast, the spent yeast cells and everything else, and and this would get, give you a nice creamy mouthfeel, without, without sacrificing, the, sacrificing the, acidity. the acidity. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So what what he, what what uh, Mike always said is no mallow, no uh, mallow, M A L L O. That's the term we usually use. No yep. ma- no mallow, no no mallow. Uh, and that has never been the case, and that that was one of the. And if you were talking in Spanish, that means not bad. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> no mallow. So you know, sorry, it's too okay. easy. Sorry. Well, no, no that, that's okay. Uh, that that would possibly confuse the Spanish, but other, other than that, and me. But uh, so anyway, and they were pushing the alcohol levels up, up to fourteen and a half percent. Yeah. What is this one? Let me see. We got the that, tech sheet. That that one is fourteen point one percent. Okay. But they did the thirteen point five. Uh, the the uh, they, they wanted to shoot for a thirteen five. The bricks is twenty three and a half, and that's tip. That's what they used to hold it to to get thirteen and a half. So that was a standard was lower alcohol. And the Montalini is thirteen nine, right? So just a yeah. little, yeah, a little softer. Yeah. So it, well, again, you can get the grapes riper, and and they want to do that for the the extra 
flavors you have, but they don't want to get it to such a high sugar content that when you make the wine, it's going to be a really high one. And uh, again, keeping it around four, 14 is, is, is really a good idea. So that, that, that's what they were doing. Uh, but they also went the other way and over-oaked to the point of uh, making very severely astringent wines. And, of course, if they were doing 100% malolactic fermentation, now that compensated by that by giving a nice creamy feel with a lot of alcohol. And pretty soon you got to what we called the OBCs, Oaky Buttery Chardonnays. Ah. And this was the style, of course, in the late 80s and the 90s. This was the big style. And everyone loved it. But after a while, you said, you know what, this is, it just gets more boring after a while. You don't get a lot of the uh, character of the wine that way because you really over-manipulated it. Yeah, uh, I can see that. I can see, yeah, too much oak, too much buttery. I mean, but now, you know, now there's wines making their, their, staking their claim on on that butteriness. Just like, like the wine, like butter. Exactly, butter Chardonnay. Yeah, I mean, and, just, and there's still a lot of people that 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 appeals. That's okay, to. you know. There's a, uh, we'd like to say there's a. Uh, I'll, I'll do the clean version to make sure we don't get uh, beeped off the air. But there's a seat for every saddle. Can I say that? I can't say that on the air. I can say that's for every saddle. A seat okay. for every saddle. I, know, I was I was trying to make sure I wasn't saying anything. Okay, so there you go. <laughs> So the, yeah, there's they, they make all these different types of wine because right everybody likes something different. And oh yes, so there's that's and, and it's um, you know it for some people that aren't really not passionate about wine it's almost not almost not like wine it's more like soda pop yeah you know? yeah uh, and if that's what they want that's fun. the the point is more people are buying wine so it's a gateway wine brings yeah. people into the fold exactly like that. yeah, yeah that <laughs> is the way I would do it <laughs> so so yeah we had the the bigger wines. Uh, the, the wines were riper with higher alcohol. Uh, the pHs were also higher, um, and uh, so they, they were doing a fuller body wine, finishing with a little bit of sweetness. Because the, the grapes were so ripe that even after they fermented, there was still with, with the yeast, they still had a little bit of residual sugar, maybe one or two percent. Right. And so you end up with finishing the sweetness. And again, people who were expecting, who really didn't want the dry wine, they wanted something a little sweeter. This actually appealed to a lot of people, so you were you were really manipulating the heck out of it to to, to make that kind of wine. Now, not everyone was doing that, uh, but like I said, uh, Gerges from the the get go was not doing it. Yeah, and and of course he and and Jim Barry clashed about this. Um, that was not represented in the movie Bottle Shock because, uh, well, for other reasons that we we'll, won't go into here. But anyway, so many of these were what you the stereotypical uh, oaky. Uh, buttery Chardonnays. They also were what we call the supermarket wines. When someone used that term, and they do mean it in a, you know, it, they don't mean it's a bit it in derogatory. a nice way. Yeah, yeah. derogatory. Yeah, way it's like yeah, it's a supermarket wine. And but there was lots of these, and it was it was funding the the wine marketplace. And so you could still have a lot of these, and you could still have a lot of wines that are done more just the passionately. We want to make this wine the best we can, and and we're not trying to appeal to a popular taste. So that happened too. So that was, uh, that actually fueled another concept called the ABCs. Anything but Chardonnay. Anything but Chardonnay. 
And I've actually seen. You're this bringing on up terms I haven't heard. I haven't heard those in years. But yeah. yeah. But for a, a while, that was. Uh, I I've even seen wine lists where they had that. The ABC. That's a category. Uh, it, it's a category. And ABC, of course, yeah. this is where the Sauvignons and the and the Riesling started to come out more, as people wanted something. That they wanted something less unctuous, uh, less sweet, yeah. uh, more of an edge to it. Let and me, let me. I'm going to get on my soapbox for just a minute about wine lists, okay? Uh, just for a second, and then I'll give you a chance to sniff and taste while I do a little talking on this. Oh, oh thank you. But, yeah, but I think, I think, um, you know, wine lists to me fall into three categories. You've got the wine list that's so basic that has brand names on it that everybody knows that you won't have a problem at all ever finding a brand or a type of wine that will suit your taste because it's so commercialized. And then there's the wine lists that are so eclectic that even I don't recognize a single name on them. And I've been in the business 20 years. And there's brands that, and, you know, and even being in the business 20 plus years, you, you, don't, you don't know of every single winery that's out there. But the, they curate these lists that are so eclectic that... I have a hard time navigating them. And then there's the balanced approach, which I think is probably the best approach. You have a mix of wines that people know and trust and something they could kind of fall back on, uh, blended with a list of wines that are somewhat eclectic, somewhat unique, proprietary. Maybe they're just small producers that they're able to get their hands on. Mm-hmm. Maybe something that a, a staff person, a sommelier, or if they don't have a sommelier, even the server can point you to and explain and, and maybe get you to try something outside of your comfort zone. Exactly. And those are the wine lists I find to be the best because if I don't find something appealing, I have something to fall back on and I don't feel like, uh, uh, I don't know, looking at the list, I don't feel like I'm, I'm inept at, at, at deciphering what's in front of me. Oh, yeah. You know, that's the thing. People feel, people are often um, feeling like they, they're, they, if they don't have the knowledge, it's embarrassing to, to, to try oh, yeah. to choose something on a wine list. They feel embarrassed helping, asking for help sometimes. They want to be able to pick something. And I think you need to give customers that choice. Somewhere on the list, there has to be two or three options in each category. It's something that they're familiar with that they've heard of before that the name is recognizable enough that they can say, oh, I, I've heard of that winery and I know what that's going to taste like in general. Yeah. And I think that's, that's kind of a, that's my, that's my soapbox on wine lists. But when you get to, you know, some of these producers, it's just, you know, they have to, that, that it goes back to that anything but Chardonnay, yeah. right? Sometimes you get into these categories where you, you I, I hear of producers I've never heard of before. And it, I, I go, well, I don't know the producer. I've never heard of them. I have no idea what their wine's going to taste like. I'm probably not going to order it. And um, unless you do have a psalm there, unless that, you that have someone that can explain yeah. it, that's exactly yeah. right. And, and of course, it, it's not my soapbox, but I I do. I, I've actually designed uh, wine lists too, too. I mean, that's what a, a sommelier does. That's one of the things yeah. you do is create the list. Uh, do you subscribe to that balanced approach? Is that is yeah? That uh, the one of my favorite ones was uh, Perry Star. Uh, when when Samuel yeah. McFall was there, uh, do you ever meet Samuel McFall? I don't know Samuel, but I'm, uh, I'm familiar uh, with Perry, sir. Yeah. Uh, you, you missed a really cool guy. He is <laughs> really very knowledgeable. He's he be, created all the lists there, and so he had a, a list that was fairly extensive that covered er- everything. But then he had his wine by the glass, and it was two pages, and you wanted to just read it and take home. Yeah, because he he, he described every one of those wines, so you had a good a good idea right off the get-go of whether you would want to try that wine or not. 
and that's that's what I call a good wine list. It has to, you know, and of course then you go to some of the high end restaurants and they plunk this thing that looks like a an old encyclopedia old, old Bible, right? <laughs> just you know, your, your your table sags under the weight of it, and then you know, you just say, uh, "Okay, I'm officially intimidated now." Sir, have you made a selection? <laughs> no, I'm only on page thirty-five. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, I'm, still, I'm still working my way through, this. and I'm still in the whites. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I haven't I'm, even got to the reds yet. I'm still just in the old world whites. I haven't the even gotten world. to the new world. Yeah, okay. Eventually, we we'll get there. Anyway, so yeah, yeah. A, a wine list I think is is important. It really should be there to educate the customer and, and induce them to, to buy them. But also a trained wait staff is also critical. You know what dri- I'm, I'm getting back on my soapbox for a second. You know what drives me nuts too is the, sh- the, two, the wine list that's too short. The wine list that only has like three choices. Like really. That is the worst thing. You know, right? if I you mean, go to a high-end restaurant, that, is, that does make me pretty angry. If it you're does. Gonna, if you're going to offer wine... You offer wine and you offer actual choices. So at a very, this is perfect. I'm so oh. glad you brought this up. <laughs> oh my gosh, because I won't drink wine if I only have a few offerings or one selection per kind. Like if you don't have the depth to have someone who is, this is, you know, this to be true. Right. If you don't have the depth to actually cultivate and create a wine selection uh, with pairing with food, it tells me two things: you don't have a chef who knows how to pick wine and pair with wine, and you don't have someone who cares enough about wine to invest in wine so that they can have themselves a fine dining experience. It feels lazy. So if, yeah. It feels it's lazy. It's way to, lazy. And lazy if you try to tra- charge me over $20 a plate at a place that only has an offering of just a, a small number, it, there's no sense in me dining at your place. It's not a fine dining establishment. It's yep. just not. Not to be a food snob, because I'm not, but, you know, I should be rifling through various... Uh, Pages because you have a wine cellar because that's why we go to your restaurants. And you know the other thing that drives me. I'm, I'm gonna. We're, I know we're to off category, but I got one more thing that drives <laughs> yeah, me nuts. Go ahead. If you if you select if you have a house wine, tell me what it is on the on the menu. Don't yeah, just I'm not, I'm don't not just eating say, at Olive Garden. Don't, right? But don't just say house wine on your list. Mm-hmm. Tell me what brand it is. I'm right. okay. I'm okay with that. Like if I want to choose that, I want to choose that. But I want to know what your house wine is. Don't just say house white seven dollars a glass. <laughs> Tell me what it is. Yeah. So uh, do I have to ask you, really? You couldn't have put that on the menu? I have to ask you what the house... Or is it changing every week? Because, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's so, the, so, so let's uh, let's refer back to, to Jim on this. And I think, Jim, you're one of those that knows all the various local wineries. And I think that that's important. I think this might be okay or could be okay if you had a local chef with locally sourced product and elements along with locally sourced wines for the pairing. Right. I think that would be totally something with, yes. that would be everybody would be okay with if you have a limited offering. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, it, it's, it's not as prevalent here as it is like in California. Uh, whenever, wherever your restaurant is located in California, and all the wines around there are, are going to be uh, uh, possible candidates to, uh, for inclusion on their menu. Yes. Because... They know a lot of people who came there not just for the food but for the wine. Sure, you want to support the local, and you want to support the local economy. Yeah. And it sounds as it should be. That sounds right. Yeah, that sounds right. But that's not a concept that they have here, which is one of the problems you have. There is what I, I won't mention the restaurant. They they do extremely good steaks, but they think with the, the people coming in there, the clientele, they're not interested in wine, and they have a very small list. And and I said, you know, I I'm not going to go there. Is that Longhorn? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to try to name names. But I'll, I'll, let me just say, I, I looked at what he had, and I, I said, I says, well, well, how do you know if they aren't going to, if, if you don't try? 
adding a couple of extra ones. On. No, 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 I'm not going to do that. Okay, fine. Uh, so, yeah, there was always that side of things. All right, we are we are way off topic. Yeah, we, we are we way are. off topic. I'm sorry. I got to bring us back around here, Jim. Okay. Bring us back around because we haven't even talked about the Montalini yet. We got to get to that. That's and right. I, and I've already drank it. This oh my gosh, is, is unbelievable. It off, yep. uh, yeah. Insane. Off the hook. Okay, we'll, we'll just skip past that in, into this and, and also talk about yeah. The Gurgis is fantastic. That's okay, uh, I mean it, it was it was several hours of research, but we'll just. Yeah, I think our, our, see, our, in my opinion, our choices today are between fantastic and outstanding. Like that's the levels we have today. Oh yeah, like, yeah well, Gurgis and the Montalini, the fantastic and outstanding. Like they're two, the two unbelievable wines. Right. Like not even. There's not even a choice here. They're both great. Oh, yeah. That, that, no, no question. I, I knew that going in. That oh. I was going to say, oh, this is going to be fun. Uh, and So anyway, so the first one is, again, this is Gurgit Hills uh, Estate 2016 Chardonnay, 14.1%, $39.99. Um, it's, uh, it, of course, it's owned by uh, the Bayanko Mike Gurgit and Austin Hills. So that's how the Gurgit Hills came out. And uh, so it's all certified organic. Uh, they, what they say is crisp yet rich with ripe pear, toasted almonds, and a note of minerality. Uh, the text sheet actually goes into that in much more detail. So it basically you get an idea of, of, of what, and, and again, as I said before, with uh, it, it, his middle name could have been No Mallow uh, Gurgich, you know, really. Because he, he, he believed fervently for a long time that that was, that was the thing. Is, is, and, and that's, of course, something they never did in, in, uh, in Burgundy. And so, the uh, so, so uh, again use indigenous yeast again. So uh, again, we're still doing these natural yeast. Um, they, the, they they did real. It was a, a very good year. They they had really the perfect weather all the way through. They picked everything before the first rain. As as we mentioned, the uh, it, with with rain, it it gets into the skins of the grapes and then it really kind of waters them down, which is not a good thing. So they didn't have that problem. And it's the uh, is American Canyon and Carneros Vineyards is where this comes from. So, and I haven't actually identified where the American Canyon is, but it's obviously not uh, the Carneros area, and it might be a mountain location. I have to investigate that later. But any, anyway, those are the two locations that he used for for this particular one. Fermented and aged ten months in eighty percent barrels and twenty percent Fodre. Uh, okay. Uh, F-O-U-D-R-E, if you see that, this is the first time, so I'm checking out. It's a large wooden vat. They're popular in France, particularly the Rhone Valley. They have very high capacity, up to 1,000 liters. So he was doing some of this in really large. Now, the, what, what's the difference about this? The base difference is you do it in barrels. Much smaller, you have more oak contact. A much larger vessel, less oak contact. Okay. So, And then by blending those together, he gets just the right amount. He doesn't want too much oak fluence, but enough to just make this a wonderful wine. Uh, and the barrels were 25% new and 75% neutral. So again, not a lot of oak expression here, but uh, enough to add all the elements that you want to make this really nice. No, we got a lot of crisp minerality in this thing. Yeah, a lot of acidity. Yeah, but but mild minerality. It's really not. No, no, it's not, not overpowering. Yeah, this yeah. thing is. It's not chalky. Yeah. No, it, it's, it flows is, like water. This is one of those wines you could drink through the first bottle and then look for the next one. Yeah, it's like, oh yeah, this is this is really good. This is really. really and then good. check your uh, checking account and say, well, why? Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> so let's move on to the second one. Because well, we're gonna... well, let's get a little critical acclaim first. Oh, okay? I'm sorry. Okay, on, the, please. The canner uh, really liked this one. Stunningly complex with aromas of smoke, brioche, toast, and a little plentiness. That's the minerality that they get. This is beautifully balanced with a blend of sweet apple, oyster shell, oyster shell, yeah, and and uh, gentle sweet oak. Uh, classy wine with such potential to develop further at 97 points. That was the highest one that it got. Uh, wine enthusiasts gave it 93. Uh, opening to touches of oak and reduction, white evolves into a lovely swan. Beautifully structured and deep in texture. And they were probably drinking too much of this wine when they were writing this. And flavor. Pear, apple, and pineapple. Wrap around toast and dried herb. Finish mm. strong and supple. Yeah, when I read these, some of it is like, were they all drink? Were they all drinking the same wine? No, they all have different wine palettes. <laughs> and so what they got from it, you know, that, the, the the others were 92, so I would say probably 93 would be about the average for the, the different ones out there. And uh, <sighs> it is it is quite wonderful, though. It's it's a wonderful wine. It's an easy drinking one, very great with food, uh, almost any kind of food that'll go with. Really like that one a lot. And we have the Chateau Montalegna 2017. Okay, and so uh, again, but by the way, the Website for you, 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 you check the website for Chateau Montalegna, obviously. Um, I, I would think the the chateau is breathtakingly gorgeous, is it not? It is, it, it is just a stunningly beautiful building. So, 1882 entrepreneur uh, Alfred Tubbs bought 250 acres of land just north of Calistoga, which is where they're located here, and at the foot of Mount St. Helena. Um, and, and and his fortune was in the rope business. <laughs> so from rope to wine, who who would have figured? And uh, so anyway, he uh, he had that for quite a while. He planted vines, and by 1896, it was the seventh largest winery in Napa Valley. Huh. So it wasn't my very long history, as you said. 1882 yeah. is uh is, is when he bought it. It would have been a while after that that he planted grapes. And, right, and right. That, but yeah. But it does say on the label 1882, which exactly. speaks back to the origin or the origins of exactly. the, of the winery. And, and, and in 1958, the Tubbs family sold it to York Wing Frank, a Chinese electrical engineer, and his wife Jeannie, who were looking for a retirement home. It's like, <laughs> wow, was this a retirement home? It's like, uh, are you bringing your entire family here by any chance? Is this like several generations? Because this is a really big place. Anyway, so they, uh, in 1968, Lee and Helen Pashich, uh, Pashuch, Pashuch, whatever, I'm not even sure how to pronounce that one. Anyway, those people, they, they bought the property along with their partners, James L. Barrett and property developer Ernest Hahn. And, of course, uh, Jim Barrett is, is the one who took it from there. He planted the, uh, the grapes there, and they began producing it in 1972. But it was a 1973 release that was really intriguing. So wait a minute. So so before that, they were just uh, selling the grapes to other winemakers. Is that all they were? Contract, right? Just well, it, it's a winery, so it, right. they had a winery, so they were selling some grapes, and then they were also making. Because it said it, they were making, they installed winemaking equipment. So I thought maybe they weren't making making the wine there until 1972. Oh. Uh, that was no, that was all new equipment. I think. Oh, okay. But, but before that, they were making wine there. Oh, yeah. Okay, but, yeah. but they were also selling some of the selling the grapes off as well. Yeah, well, yeah. And but yeah, if you had a large property like that, yeah, you yeah. probably would. Yeah. Uh, okay. Because it's 
you know, it's it's uh, it, your crush facility and everything. If it's not big enough, then you can't. Right, you do make it some all. you make some proprietary wine, a state grown wine, and then the rest of them were sold off with contracts for right. grapes. Okay, yeah, got it. So anyway, this was uh, in uh, Jim Barry and and uh, Mike Gergish. Obviously, he was his winemaker, and uh, so. One of the things that uh, one of the conflicts that they had, of course, was, was that uh, Tim Barrett liked to do lots of racking, so you just transfer one vessel to another, and this kind of purifies it. See, he wanted a really clean-looking wine. So you tell me, the wine that won the judgment was like the first vintage that he had produced, the second vintage, or the second vintage he had produced. That's right. That's crazy. The second vintage. Yeah. That's that's insane. <laughs> I, I I know what I. I like, well, back in this, like usually, we take like years to perfect it and and maneuver it and get it just right. But the second vintage. But sometimes you just get lucky right off the bat, <laughs> and that was the, the case here. So with all the racking, of course, it changed color, and he thought, "Oh, this is not going to be good." So uh, Jim's uh, uh, had another producer who liked you know cheap wine, and he and he said, "I'll, I'll offer all my cases of this wine to you um, because I don't think I'm, I'm going to put it out." And he didn't hear back from the guy. Then the wine changed back and cleared up, and it was fantastic. Oh. And and he said, "Oh, okay. Well, I offered this to him. I'm gonna." So I I sent him a a I think he sent him a t- telegram and said, um, "I need to hear from you in the next 24 hours if you want to buy this lot." And then he sweated bullets for 24, 24 hours, hours. <laughs> before he got no. And and then he took the wine back. And the rest was was history. Wow. It, when they do do the mo- movie, they had it entirely different. Like it was. All I haven't s- watched that movie. I got to watch that. Oh, it, oh, you'll love it. Uh, it's, it's. Can I get that on uh, Netflix or Amazon Prime or something like that? I'm not sure. I'm oh, gonna have to look it up. I'm sure I can. I want to see. Could, it. I can come over to my house. We'll have some, right. some wine and watch the movie. That sounds like a. It's plan. a good excuse. I haven't. I haven't watched that movie. I really should. No, it it, it really is is good and. Uh, <laughs> really fascinating characters in that. I mean, the whole course of history would have changed if the if the wine had been sold. If that lot oh, oh yeah. Sold. Well, the 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 next Shalon might have come in number three. Yeah. Because uh, they were the next. Uh, they they were actually fairly close, uh, and that's another good quality wine. Yeah. You're probably familiar. Absolutely. And so anyway, 2008, it was announced that Michelle uh, Rebier, uh, owner of uh, Clos Eternel, uh, had purchased Chateau Montalene for an undisclosed sum. Unfortunately, that deal fell through, and so. The Barretts still own that property, and they're still doing fabulous wine. And like you said, yeah, they would have uh, they would have destroyed that property if they got a hand, if the French got a hold of it. They would have just blown the place up. No, but they might have changed the name. Yeah, <laughs> true, right? They, they might have changed the name, but whatever. But anyway, so to make sure that Chateau Montalegna never saw the light of day again <laughs> as a wine, or 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 maybe not. <laughs> Either but way, it's a great wine. It, it is an ex- extremely good. Uh, I like the earthy elements in in this one, uh, and you know they're both really good wines. If, if I had to choose between the two of them, I would probably say I'll take the Gurkhas because I saved twenty dollars. But otherwise, they're both really extremely okay, good so wines. Does if, anybody care what I like? If I'm buying, it's the Gurkhas. If if you're buying, it's the Montalina. That's the way it goes. <laughs> I will I that. will buy you the Montalina. <laughs> it's so good, isn't it? My gosh, it is. I'm, I'm still I'm afraid, enjoying. Them. I'm afraid to go back into that room over there because you guys are going to get after me because I'm going to try to pour myself some more, and I don't deserve it. Of course, you do. What, what was <laughs> it you said the other day, uh, Eddie? I was listening to the show, mm-hmm. the live show. You said something about 
when opportunity meets uh, luck pre- preparation. Or- when preparation oh. meets opportunity, that's you don't need luck. You don't. Because. Okay, that's what it was. I knew it was like when preparation meets opportunity, you don't need luck. And I think about that when we're talking about this, right? Because this was the second vintage mm-hmm. is with the one that won in 1973 yep. or 76. Sorry, 76. 76. Yep. The second vintage out of this winery. That's opportunity and preparation because he didn't. Need, he didn't need luck. It wasn't lucky. He knew what he was doing. That's well, I got to tell you, this uh, this is an embarrassment of riches today on the show. It is, except I'm not embarrassed at all. on top of that... By the way, like, we're, we're drinking way above our, our class level <laughs> right now. We're, we're punching above our weight, punching as, above they, our weight. As, as they say. So, we're drinking yeah, way above. Um, way above. It's infrequent that I think uh, people here in our city get to enjoy wine like this. Um, and I, I would say... The reason for that is just, you know, we're not littered with, you know, a number of places where you can pick this stuff up and and, and choose this. Obviously, Total Wine and Spirits, but uh, Kevin, here's an opportunity to give the shout out to all of uh, the wonderful places that uh, I don't know. I don't know. Honestly, I haven't. I didn't. I didn't do my homework. Oh, I don't know what. Right, but why don't you got, just do a quick plug for all of that and let them know? Well, uh, I mean, him. certainly, certainly, besides Total Wine, I mean, certainly Jubilation and Coco Man and Susan's are gonna, you know, would have this have availability to this and, and offer these things. But I no, I was thinking of restaurants. I don't know. There's got to be, you know, I'm sure there's a handful in Santa Fe that have this on the menu. There might be one or two here in Albuquerque. That carry. I mean, we're only of this Montalini. We're only selling about two cases a month. You, you realize, like, this is on a wine list. This is probably no. going to be right. 150 to 200 dollars Chardonnay on a wine list in that range. Am I am I in the ballpark? And yep. probably featured yep. maybe what at uh, two or three restaurants in the entire. That's a- Try, try a little bit more of the the Gergish. It's really opening up a lot more. Boy, well, just Jim, Jim's it, really it trying to right in the middle you know, of. Uh, he's trying to sell it. He's trying to sell it. He's trying to sell his. He's trying to sell he's his like, pick uh, over mine. He's like, you can't find this anywhere, but this it's right like here a, in the studio, oh, and I'm going to have it right now. Eddie, this is like the great wine debate. This is like we've had debate. The we've judgment had, of Kiva. The judgment of Kiva. We have we have we've had other debates going on this week, and now we have the wine debate. And Jim is trying to win the debate over his. Choice of Gergich. Uh, uh, everyone has a different wine palette, so everyone's going to look at a different. My wine palette is telling me uh, the you know both these are are the kind of wines are going to open up over time. You, you want normally think of that for white wine, but a, a well made white wine uh, like a Chardonnay, it'll evolve over over time. The, this I, is like I mean, trying to pick a favorite child. This is amazing versus unbelievable. Like you can't even pick the right one. <laughs> This, they're they're both fantastic. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna argue with you over which wine is better, Jim. Oh no no, uh, they're both unbelievable. No, no, no. They are both great wines, and and one will appeal more to yes. one person versus That's another. True. Personal and, taste, yeah, that, yeah. It comes personal down to personal taste. taste. And for for my personal taste, uh, the way the the Gergens is opening up, I'm, I'm, it's actually becoming bigger. Yeah. Um. And and you know, just try a little taste and see what you think. I and, mean, retail wise, they're about ten dollars, ten to fifteen dollars apart. Yeah, twenty dollars apart, whatever. Yeah. But they're, but you know, they're still, and they're still pricey. They're not; these are not yeah. expensive. Well, uh, I mean, when you have a name like Chateau Montalena, and people, everyone remembers yeah. that they had the top Chardonnay. So you think there's price built into the name? Well, Do you you're, think? The, you're the, the marketing Ooh. guy. Just ask, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just asking time. a question. Just asking the question. In your opinion? I, Do you think there's price I built into so, the name? Yeah. Okay. All right. I, I think so, but people don't know right off the bat that Mike Gergich was part of Monta- was part of Chateau Montalini. That's 
No, they they, they the probably The average don't. everyday person doesn't know no. that you know, no. that fact. Yeah. So once they learn that, then okay, then they understand why Gergich is so good. Yeah. But but he okay. is he is known as the father of California Chardonnay. I would I don't disagree with that, and I'm just saying. But it, so I think okay. <laughs> this is a debate of wine, but it's a good debate because it's a debate. It's a debate that has no no loser. Well, that's well. It's, it's actually not a, a debate. It's 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 about preferences. That's right. And everyone has right. different preferences. And and I wouldn't throw either, either of these bottles out of the bed. I was only using the word debate because of what because of the, the the current news cycle. That's all. Oh, of debates going on in the world. So it wasn't it wasn't meant as anything other than that. I was just I'm just messing around. With I don't it. think they're really debates. Uh, I don't oh. know why I would call these, but I definitely wouldn't characterize them as debates. Let's stick. We should just stick to that, wine. Uh, yeah. Okay. We got to stick to wine. Yeah, you're right. But, but you know what? I'm I'm glad we discussed this and the history and the, and the, and that and we really didn't even talk about the Judgment of Paris and all this. We didn't talk about that. This is the 44th anniversary. I would highly recommend seeing the movie Bottle Shock. I have to go see it myself. I have to see it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So. It is. It is. Maybe it we, is not just for wine nerds. By the way, that is a movie anyone would would, would love. Maybe uh, in this day and age, you can find it in theaters. Maybe you know because they're not showing anything new. So maybe there's something. Why don't we go buy it? <laughs> why don't we go buy a theater and watch it by ourselves? We could show. We could show it ourselves. Oh, or yeah. you guys can watch it on my 70 inch uh, TV hanging. Oh, that's like a theater with the. You know, yeah. drawing the uh, curtains down. By the way, I love what you've done with the place here. You've really classed. Uh, hey, I you love re- what you've done with, with the, the place. I, you've really classed it up. You yeah. really, you really brought it up to a whole new level. I can't wait. Well, you've helped with that. Uh, you also oh, brought an, uh, another offering. Uh, it, well, every time Jim walks in, he classes it up. There's no <laughs> oh, doubt about it. But that is um, I'll tell you the uh, the wonderful red wine that you brought me this week. Tell me a little bit about it. Oh, that's a BRV from Trincaro Napa Valley. Uh, it's named after uh, Bob, Roger, and Vera. Which are the son, the the, the children yeah. of that's a fabulous winemaking family. Yeah, and that those wines are sourced from the that that was the old Foliadu winery, just just a little oh, bit yeah. north on twenty nine of uh, outside right. of St Helena. Right. Um, and it's the it, there's about fifteen acres of 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 uh, vineyards there, and where they source those grapes from, and they make that wine. That's like sort of boutique wine. Um, those sell for about forty or fifty dollars a bottle, give or take, in that range. Um, I actually, I, I'm, I'm part of the Trincaro uh, Ambassadors Club. There's actually a ca- Cabernet vine with my name on it. Oh, really? At that in that vineyard. Yep. There's wow, a, that's cool. Yeah, I have. That's a, very cool. So I have, I've had the pleasure a couple of years ago of going back to check on my grapes and see how they're doing. Uh, as as uh, I, I, I did fondle my grapes at one point just to make sure that they oh, were dear. right. I, d- I dump okay. that. Don't worry. That okay, you're gonna dump that. That won't make air. <laughs> that won't make the air. To make sure that they were ripe. No, no, that's right. It's it, there are other ways. Okay. You know, I'm <laughs> the, you, you to make I was sure. like racing. Oh, where's the dump button? <laughs> we can't say that. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, well, uh, as long as you're fondling grapes, like grapes, all right. Yeah, grapes to make sure that they're ripe. And I tasted them in. Ju- we were there in July and August, and I just had to take one and taste it because it was from my vine. Right. And it was awful, Jim. It would. They were green. And they were bitter. Oh yeah. And they were god awful. But I had to taste one because I'm like, this is my vine. Like, how can I not have a grape from my the vine with my name on it? Yeah. Well, you have to wait until it actually has. Re- sure. But, yeah. And, it was, and of it course, was two months too early. Yeah. It was a two but months. They, they have scales and things they use. That oh yeah. They can they can check the sugars. But the the big thing is to actually put one in your mouth, sample the juice, check the skin, the yep. skin skin thickness and and the flavors. 
and also crunch the seeds. Ah. Because the seeds are going to be part of it, right? If the seeds are still green, yeah, that they, they adds a bitter element to the wine you don't want. And that, we were talking with the winemaker out there, and he—that's what he, you know, he does. He goes around the vineyard, and the winemaker is tasting the different grapes to oh, see yeah. to check them at the right time. I said we were there way too early in the season. We were in the middle of summer, but I said I just had to taste one just because it was from my vine. I, I actually, I think I, I think I, sh- you know, I wasn't allowed to do that. I was out in the vineyard, and I, you know, they don't want you touching the vines or touching the grapes. I mean, that's what they're going to make. Fondling them, or make that's what they're going to make their wine from. They're like, but I'm like, I, uh, Kevin I said, is here, the wine, the the grape fondler. Let's said, uh, keep an eye on him, please. I said, no, nobody's looking. I'm going to grab a grape and taste it just because. And we're like, we grabbed it, we put it in our mouth, and we're like. Oh, this is awful. Classy wines. <laughs> it's July. <laughs> classy wines, unclassy gentlemen enjoying some of the finest wines no, but here. If like. you ever get the chance, if you get to get there, please visit Trincaro Napa Valley. It's the it's sort of the the signature home of Trincaro family, which owns Sutter Home wines. Oh, really? Yeah, the Trincaros own Sutter Home, which is yep. The largest, uh, 10 million cases of wine, like sort of, you know, it's a fascinating story. We'll have to do that in another show, but it's a fascinating story of how the Trincaro family got to California from the East Coast. And and, and they stuck fermentation at Sutter Home when they were doing the bleed technique that, uh, yeah, yeah, that that's caused a, the rise they, of... They invented White, white Zinfandel. Zinfandel. Yes, <laughs> That's right, did. in 1973. <laughs> They invented yeah. somewhere. Yep. Yeah, invented White Zinfandel. It was an. It was by accident. It was totally by accident. So uh, crazy. There you go. Anyway, well, we, we got. I know we we covered a broad range of topics. Yeah, we really we went, did. We went everywhere. <laughs> this is. Uh, but it all comes back to Napa Valley under Chardonnay. the inspiration of two wonderful wines: Gurkhat Hills Estate 2016 Chardonnay and Chateau Montalegna 2017 Chardonnay. These are both available in your local wine shops. You should be. And if they're not, ask them for it. Ask, if they're not, ask them for it. They'll, right. br- they'll, exactly. bring, it in, they'll bring it in for you. So. Wow. Good job, guys. Thank you. Great show. I'm, yeah. I'm all we pumped got, up today. We got a little like, excitable. I'm yeah, not going to lie. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> like, how are we going to cool down off of this? So, there we yeah. are. I'm glad you're enjoying the place, the Kiva. I love it. Yeah. Just a great place to hang out. We'll have a few more shutters. And boy, oh. uh, when the showdown happens uh, November 3rd, Tell you this might be a, a great place to to chill out. So if you gentlemen want to come in, I'll watch it yeah. all go down. Anybody needs to escape the uh, the homestead well, for any g- reason? We're definitely going to need some <laughs> wine that night. No matter where you are on the spectrum, wine is in the cards. Mm. Well, we're wondering where a lot of people are wondering where Kamala Harris is, and uh, certainly Donald Trump there on the spectrum. And oh my gosh, we have got a wild one for the next uh, twenty five days, but. <laughs> You're well taken care of because these gentlemen always prepare a good show. Thank you both for being here. Great, great, great music here this evening. Uh, bar jazz. Um, just a mix thrown there. And I got to say, it was really good. See you same time, same time, same place here in the Kiva, the spirits of New Mexico. Mm-hmm.